Paul Ryan was correct. When he did the tax code, what's the first thing he decided we had to go after? Social Security and Medicare. Now, we need to do something about Social Security and Medicare. That's the only way you can find room to pay for it. Hi, everyone. Things just got real. Sunday, Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the race. And hours before recording this, Amy Klobuchar did too. Biden winning the South Carolina primary has emboldened the no we can't wing of the Democratic Party. The candidates who say no to healthcare for all, college for all, canceling medical debt, and a wealth tax on the top one-tenth of one percent, not so coincidentally say yes to taking big money from the healthcare industry, the insurance industry, and Wall Street. Trillions of dollars in profit are on the line. And the moderates are consolidating to protect it. When we started this race, Bernie told us that the establishment would align against us. The establishment aren't everyday Democrats who want a better life for their neighbors and their families, including many supporters of Amy and Pete. The establishment are those whose interests are aligned against Amy voters, Pete voters, and us, and who pushed politicians like Mayor Pete from being pro-Medicare for all to promoting a healthcare plan that was favorable to the private healthcare industry. The stakes have never been higher. Self-described moderates are consolidating behind Biden, hoping to keep Bernie from going into the convention with a 1,991 delegate majority. And I am not gonna lie to you. As it has been from the start, this is an uphill battle against tremendously powerful forces who stand to lose much if Bernie Sanders becomes president of the United States. But what has also been true from the beginning is that we have the people. Part of being a populist is trusting the movement, trusting the willingness of strangers to sacrifice their time and energy on behalf of a good idea shared in common. Politics is about persuasion. So now, more than ever, I need you to speak to the people in your lives who are willing to listen to you about the clear and stark differences between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. The choice between Biden and Bernie is a choice between the past and the future. Between a defense of a status quo where one in five American children go hungry and 500,000 go bankrupt every year from medical debt and a future where we live up to the ideals the Democratic Party purports to hold and we respect the dignity of every human life. It's between someone eager to cut essential programs like Social Security and Medicare, on which millions rely, and someone who has fought tooth and nail his entire career to protect them. Between someone who led the invasion of a foreign country on false pretenses and someone who led the opposition to that war. Between someone who was the credit card and student loan industry's best friend on Capitol Hill and someone who would use the presidency to cancel all student debt. And it's between someone who still, to this day, defends his support of trade deals like NAFTA that decimated jobs around the country, and particularly in essential Midwestern swing states, and one of the most stalwart critics of those deals. Research shows that voters are most susceptible to political persuasion when it comes from their close friends and family. Makes sense, right? Often we don't want to spark uncomfortable conversations. Today, I'm asking you 
to put aside that discomfort and make the case for a candidate who I truly believe stands the best chance of beating Trump in November. And at the same time, reorienting our entire political system away from money and toward genuine democracy. Today, it's your job to make sure the people are heard. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from the campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. This week, I was planning on releasing a joint podcast with Dan Denver of The Dig and Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show. But the airlines conspired to keep me from getting to Boston on time. So instead, we're going to include a portion of that podcast, which happened without me, along with a portion of my interview with Karen Hunter last week in New York. Karen's show is the number one news slash talk show on Sirius XM. And it was on her show that an MSNBC host made some disparaging comments about myself and other black female Bernie supporters a couple of weeks ago, causing the hashtag MisfitBlackGirls to take on a life of its own. Karen was gracious enough to invite me on the following week. And I think the interview is a useful guide for those of you who are having tough conversations with the moderates in your life, who are less familiar with the ideas and history discussed regularly on Hear the Burn. We'll link to the full version of both conversations in the show notes. I hope this is helpful. And as always, let us know what you think. We have Dan Denver, who's the host of the Dig Podcast with Jacobin Magazine. He's going to be in conversation with Michael Brooks from The Michael Brooks Show. And we have Natalie Schur here, um, who is a journalist who specializes in the healthcare beat and also has an amazing uh, Twitter presence, which I follow. Very spicy. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of our other guests, Brianna Joy Gray, was... Um, delayed and was unable to be here, but we have a wonderful panel. So we're just going to dive right in. Um, And what I will say is that just what I said at our last Dig podcast, which is the Dig is a podcast that does not only interpret the world, but aims to change it. Is that correct? Um, And that's what we're doing here. So this this event is not simply to learn and listen from these wonderful interpreters, but to actually go out afterwards and change it. So if you don't have a turf number to go canvas, that's something that you can get afterwards, and we're going to be doing a training, and then we're going to send you out in the world to get votes for Bernie and win Massachusetts. And Bree is uh, very sorry that she can't be here. She was in South Carolina and then was taking a plane from there to D.C. at 6 a.m. And her plane was like 10 minutes delayed, which caused her to miss her connection in D.C. But uh, the struggle They were conspiring against us. (laughs) And The uh, airline schedules are rigged. It was rigged and it was totally unfair. And uh, it's going to be something we're going to be looking at very strongly. Delta or bust? Delta or bust? Um, Lufthansa or bust? Yeah, so I, 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 but it does take, it uh, puts, makes it slightly less complicated. I was going to have two fellow hosts for this interview, and now I have one, only one fellow host and, and, and a person more in the, the guest slot. So that's, 
It's comforting. I'll defer to you guys and respect you as hosts. <laughs> and we will shift the burden for all the content to you as a guest. Okay. Um, so we're here to win Massachusetts, which uh, of course is just internet harassment, but in real life. It's a very important targeted harassment. <laughs> Campaigning in a state to win. <laughs> um, but it's pretty... Uh, Remarkable. We in Rhode Island have been helping to organize in the Massachusetts campaign since it kicked off. And at first, it didn't seem like one that the Bernie campaign really thought was a viable target. And now recent polls have Bernie up pretty significantly. Um, what have you been seeing so far on the ground here, Natalie? Yeah, so I've uh, canvassed a couple times in Massachusetts now, uh, mostly in the Boston area. And I think it's I think it's pretty heartening. Uh, there's still a strong Warren presence here, uh, which I think you'll find if you canvass today. Uh, and I think that there will be throughout the Boston area. I've heard otherwise outside of the Boston area. Uh, but I think we have to understand this not only as a Massachusetts issue, but as um, you know, a California and Texas issue that they're doing so so well in major states uh, that they I think decided to allocate some more attention and resources to other states that uh, feel like bonus states after some of the major ones. So I think that's really a testament to uh, the incredible organizing that's been going around uh, on around the country. So excited about that. Massachusetts is certainly like a very sweet cherry on top state to win. It's, d- it's Super a, yeah. If you if you like fruit on your desserts, that's the <laughs> analogy I would use. I mean, I, I think it's it's also necessary to put any game playing at the convention out of question. So he actually, we need to rack up margins and we need to compete everywhere. And, uh, you know, I haven't lived in Massachusetts for quite a while, but I grew up in this state and I, you know, grew up in the other part of it in Western Mass. And if you look at this state broadly and obviously we want everybody's votes but i think that in the well in the popular imagination massachusetts used to just be like harvard and mit and now it's like harvard and mit plus like the town uh and and that's you know okay but there's this is a real agricultural state this is a real labor state this is a state that actually has a lot of you know, relatively speaking, diversity, including the Caribbean community in Boston, Portuguese, Italians, Cape Verdean community in Cape Cod. And it's a working place. So this is actually exactly where uh, this coalition should be winning. Yeah, I've been canvassing in Massachusetts uh, every weekend since New Hampshire. And my best doors I've ever had in either Massachusetts or New Hampshire was was the projects in Fall River. And it is remarkable how much Massachusetts does not fit the mold of this weird stereotype that it has as sort of the Boston Brahmin John Kerry land yep. in national media. Um, and I think that this that the way Super Tuesday appears like it will go in this state if we all do our job between now and then will also be to kind of repudiate this absurd stereotype of, of the state. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. and And so many absurd stereotypes about so many things so i'll leave it at that so speaking of of like basically everyone except biden hanging in the race in an attempt to get or including biden i guess an attempt to get selected by super delegates on a second 
round, how should we be thinking about that and preparing for it? Obviously, the number one thing we got to do is win a majority of delegates so they can't pull any shit. But how should we be thinking about the very real possibility that if there's an opportunity to pull some shit that they will? Yeah, so I think that one thing that people miss in this conversation uh, is the idea that obviously getting an outright majority is preferable. That's the outcome that we want to shoot for. And I think that that's the outcome that is very much within our grasp. Uh, but beyond that, the the outlook is so different if we get 40-something percent versus if we have a plurality of 27 percent uh, ahead, you know, ahead by two points uh, of the next person, something like that. I mean, the the margins matter, uh, and we are in a way stronger rhetorical, moral fighting position uh, if we have something higher than 40. And so all of that is, um, you know, like you guys said, margins matter. Um, getting every vote matters. Um, I think that Non-viable candidates uh, dropping out of the race matters. Um, if we can get to that point. Uh, and so I think that amassing as many votes as possible and that we're no longer thinking about uh, who's in first place versus who's in second place. I think a few weeks ago it really did look like, okay, having having so many moderates vying for the same lane isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I, I've come to revise my thinking uh, on that somewhat. Uh, I think that as many votes as possible coming from as many places as possible uh, is very helpful. And we all know that um, all of the candidates right now, I think except for Bloomberg in the last poll, have uh, the supporters of all of the candidates have Sanders as their second choice. Uh, and so however, however politically incoherent that seems to people who are in this room, who I think are by definition. People are weird as hell, ordinary people. And yeah. thank God, thank God yeah. people are not the way that cable news construes them as or else like this world would be a much worse place. I talked to a woman once who was like, I love Obama. I wish Biden ran. Hillary Clinton's a criminal, so I won't vote for her. I don't like Trump, but I'm excited that Newt Gingrich might get a cabinet role. And why didn't you guys nominate Bernie? He's such a nice man. That's how people think. Yeah, I was uh, canvassing last night. It was cold. It was, you know, the sun had already set, so 20-something degrees. And uh, we canvassed this younger guy. He invites us in. So great. You know, it's warm, toasty. We're warming up our fingers. And he said, yeah, you know, I decided on Bernie. I'm all in. I was almost going to go for Pete. I decided on Bernie <laughs> at that point. All right, thanks, man. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing else to say. Bernie um, does a much better Obama impression than Pete. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as we were discussing, single white female earlier, first time as Pete Obama, does. first time as Obama, second time as Buttigieg. Oh, yeah. It's really <laughs> sad. You do hate to see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> say a little more about you revising your, your take on this in terms of like feeling like it's a better thing for it to basically be what it looks like it's becoming now, which is a Biden Bernie race, because the conventional wisdom that I think was shared by many of us in Bernie land as well is that it wasn't a bad thing for the moderates to be dividing up their votes. Um, I, I, you know, this, this gets into some, some game theory that I'm not necessarily prepared we're to play ready for out some logic. all, all right now. I think, I think maybe a two person race isn't what I want. Uh, I think maybe, um, you know, I, I wouldn't mind a uh, like three to five person race at the moment, uh, depending on which those candidates would be. And I think that uh, right now it looks as if at least a strong plurality of the voters of most candidates will go to Bernie. Um, and so 
as long as the rest of their votes are relatively split between three to five candidates, I think that we'll be in a good position. And that, that actually brings two quick things up that I'd like you guys to touch on. So one, I think it's really important, and I'm sure you're experiencing this when you're canvassing, that there is probably, I mean, I don't think there's a single modern politician that there's a bigger disconnect between what normal people think of them and how they're covered in the media. And that's not just like because we like Bernie. That's just like reality. You can see that in polls. You can certainly experience that anecdotally, even amongst people who aren't necessarily planning on voting for him. Everybody outside of like cable studios are like, yeah, he seems like a good person. So and I think that uh, that's very important to keep really, really centering in the narrative about how he is not only the front runner, he is somebody that people I think generally, and I want to get your thoughts on this, would be satisfied with. And the only question mark for them is whether or not he can win, which I think obviously I think he can or we wouldn't be here. The second thing really quick, and this tax on the South Carolina is a bigger project that's actually really important for this campaign and and for a variety of things. Like there is a really diverse black electorate inside itself. It's reported and talked about as a monolith that's literally inaccurate. And so in some ways that like it calls for, you know, humility and like there's no surprise that Biden won South Carolina and there's a lot of historical reasons behind it. There's a lot of reasons that make sense from a certain perspective, right? Like I should never be blaming any electorate, period, right? And at the same time, we're already putting like deplorables type thing. Yeah, like, and that was after a the very voters. profoundly yeah. stupid thing yeah. to do there as well, right? So, in but we know in 2016 that Bernie's share of the African-American vote started to shift substantially as soon as you get into the industrial Midwest where there is a very powerful labor tradition, a powerful black labor tradition. Even inside New York, you know, campaigning in Manhattan versus Brooklyn, that those are radically different traditions in a way, right? Like Manhattan is this powerful tradition going back to Adam Clayton Powell and the great migration in the Caribbean is very influential in Brooklyn. So I think there's a way of puncturing this talking point that, oh, well, it shows he can't, you know, pull up, you know, the coalition. I mean, one, that isn't true. It's erasing a lot of support. But two, it's also like you can't just keep on condensing uh, incredibly complex electorates to the your purposes of talking points because you're eliminating huge complexities in them. So anyways, I like your thoughts on on both of those. Yeah, no, I, th I think those are both really important points on the first one in all of my weeks of canvassing i only met two msnbc style liberals who hate who like r disliked bernie um everyone else including uh, amy klobuchar supporter i met you know various other people they they liked bernie even if bernie wasn't their first choice and most of the people i was talking to bernie was their first choice but the people i he, for whom he wasn't the first choice, they still liked him and they were worried about electability. This was where the the media kind of narrative was, was infecting things, but nothing makes someone look like a winner as much as winning. And with some, with some small exceptions like yesterday, Bernie has been winning solidly. And that I think, I think generally speaking, we don't have to worry about ordinary Democratic Party voters if, knock on wood, Bernie is the nominee, lining up solidly behind him. And I'm actually, for someone on the left, 
socialist left fairly optimistic about democratic leaders ultimately lining up behind him as well. Because if we believe that they're sort of ideologically vacuous, the Democratic Party establishment, and care about their own power, then I don't see why we won't expect to see something similar to what happened with Trump, who realigned the entire Republican Party behind him and rendered never Trumpers, you know, to the the oblivion, uh, the the margins of uh, of newspaper columns. A small group of people get Fox gigs. Right. Yeah. They, they just. Uh, I can't believe I would. This is not my party. Yeah. And now they get to be never Bernie and never Trump people simultaneously. It'll be great. And, and then, I, yeah, I think your point on the black vote is, is, is super important. I mean, we, we already have we not only have evidence from this from 2016, where where Bernie did uh, much better amongst black voters in like Michigan or in Wisconsin than he did in, in South Carolina, but also just from this election already, Bernie was right behind just a few percentage point, points behind, I believe, Biden in the black vote in Nevada, which is not an insignificant oh, yeah. black vote. Right. Not insignificant at all. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the point about the black electorate is really important. Uh, you know, Bernie won young people overall. I think uh, young black voters in South Carolina as well. Um, and so I think it was important to realize that it's a disproportionately older state, which is something that I hadn't realized about South Carolina. Um, I do hope that there are ways that uh, the Bernie campaign uh, and the people who are representing it. So when you guys go out to Canvas, I think... Um, you know, figuring out how to speak with uh, older voters, uh, retired voters about Bernie's platform, people who have so much to gain from his platform, um, you know, people who have so much on the line when it comes to social security cuts, people who are on the front line of realizing the degree to which Medicare falls short. Um, I think that those are things that uh, you can really reach uh, a new cadre of voters to speak to uh, when it comes to Bernie's platform. And so I think that we should be thinking about doing that as well, because uh, when you look at the numbers, I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, older voters don't have anything to gain from a Biden presidency and Biden style of governance. Uh, on that tip, on a scale of like 10 to plus 10, 10, 10, how important <laughs> is it that Bernie Sanders, like basically, and, and people representing it, tell older people, and I'm, you know, set aside some people object to this ideologically, but just start talking about FDR constantly. Yeah, I mean, I I think, and that is what Bernie does when he is, you know, confronted with, oh, you're a democratic socialist. And I do, I don't know exactly the right way to thread that needle, but I do think that uh, Bernie does do a good job of sort of making radical ideas seem seem normal. And I don't know, I, I don't know the degree to which like FDR was a resonant figure for older voters through the the 80s and 90s when they were still democratic leaning like the F, the, the great depression new deal generation i wonder if the one problem i mean just a problem with the le- being in the left in the US in general is the struggle to find like a usable past you know so is FDR still that usable past with all of his his complications? Is he even resonant for older voters? I don't in know. In my anecdotal experience, a hundred percent, yeah. He is. So that's worked on, like, for t- sure. And again, I'm speaking anecdotally. Yeah. And I also, well, I'll tell you my second thought on that. But first, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think it depends on, like, a, a 65 year old. You might have a, a tougher sell with FDR than an 85 year old, right? Um, I think that makes sense. I guess it depends on who's at the door. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm saying any, I'm talking about people who are potentially persuadable to, like, yes, if you're 65 and you, you know, FDR was a secret communist who let Pearl Harbor happen, no. But if you are in the realm of this conversation, absolutely. Yeah. And I also frankly think that, sorry? Yeah, his policy. Well, and, and, and anchoring it in, like, you know, I think this is another place where we need to have a, you know, an obvious synthesis where it's like, okay, yes, there was historicizing the New Deal and understanding the obvious critiques that exist there. And of course, but then actually, I think, I think to some extent realizing that like overcorrecting to not recognize the scale of that accomplishment empowers neoliberal politics today. And I yeah. do think people who are, yes, I think people who are persuadable, it, it, it is the closest we have. Because I mean, like, JFK isn't that, right? Like, even if there was like other models, they, they don't fit in that tradition in the same way. That's the closest we have to basically some form of American social democracy. And that's a yeah. good thing and should be honored and put forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially if you think about the New Deal moment as something that was not just FDR, but the most massive upsurge in militant worker organizing that we've seen in this country with the, you know, the, C the 30s CIO strike wave and everything that I'm not saying I don't think that's necessarily conveyable at the doors. But the moment when one is referencing the New Deal era that conveys a lot and not only the kind of exclusions and problems of that period as well. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to do. I think that that is also a great way to think about what we mean when we say that the Sanders campaign is a movement and that Sanders is the movement candidate. Uh, that you don't get the New Deal in the 1930s without militant labor action, without um, people in the streets um, fighting for unemployment rights. Um, you don't get it without the you know bonus army. And so I think that those things are really important uh, to keep in mind that it's really the 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 uprising, the organizing of people outside of electoral politics that force the hand of people inside of it. Uh, and that a good way to think about Sanders is not only is he a consistent leftist who isn't funded by people we don't want to be funding our politicians, but he has a credible relationship with people outside of electoral politics, people like the people in this room and people within the labor movement who are trying to grow the labor movement, who are trying to push it to the left, uh, that he's going to be the candidate that's beholden to them and who's in the best position to uh, implement the thing that will materially benefit their lives and that will uplift them the way that they deserve to be. Uh, and that that, I think, is the most energizing thing for me about Bernie's campaign. I think that that's a really difficult thing for the media to wrap their heads around. But that's, I think, foremost when I think about the analogy with Bernie and FDR. Uh, that has a lot to do with it. Well, we've been talking about how, the, how, how we should represent the Bernie campaign knocking on doors. How do you think that the media representation of Bernie has changed since he became the, the front runner? And what should, how should we be reacting to that? I think that th as far as I've been able to see, uh, I think that the media and to some degree, a lot of voters still have trouble wrapping their heads around the idea that Sanders is, uh, 
the, 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 the argument for Sanders isn't necessarily a strictly electoral one, that it does have so much to do with movement politics outside of the legislative arena. And I think that that's why you get so many artic- uh, arguments about, you know, what what has he been able to do in Congress? Uh, you know, we can't we can't pass this. We don't have the votes. And those things, you know, are are considerations. You can't you can't hand wave them away. Uh, but the responses to a lot of those things, I think, has to do with building a movement and amassing people and that I haven't seen the media quite get that. I think that in recent weeks, as far as I've can, I can tell, I think that they've they've really, you know, this this oppo that we keep hearing about that is about to come. The vetting. Like, exactly. Wait, just wait till Sanders is vetted. And then someone finds a video of him, you know, talking about the Sandinistas uh, in Cuba. So I think I think that some of the red baiting uh, will start to happen. But I think that he's also in a position where, uh, you know, by definition, someone who has been a self-identified socialist in electoral politics for 30 or 40 years uh, has, by definition, been vetted and red baited. And I think it's not effective. I hope it continues to be less effective, but that's kind of the new wave that I've seen more recently. I don't know if you guys are going to call him a socialist. (laughs) I think, I think they might. (laughs) Just like they called again, just like they called Harry Truman an FDR a socialist. Like I'm, you know, I'm sorry to, this is not the Truman talked about that. Truman said every good thing we've ever done has been called socialism. Did you just watch a verbatim did you, you know, just watch the screener of a certain documentary that's coming no, out? No, I actually haven't. Which one? Oh, uh, a documentary, Socialism, called Socialism, that no. my friend Yael Bridge is making. Oh, well, that's awesome. It opened, well, I don't know I don't know if I'm supposed to say All this. Of, it, op- it opens with that, that Truman speech. Shouts to, I'm, I'm a Harvey JK guy, as people watch my show, yeah. so shouts to Harvey on that stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think what you have now, there's like three things I see happening in media. One is they're embarrassing themselves, which is good. Two is they're starting to grapple with the actual policy agenda and why people want or, you know, there was supposedly a quote on MSNBC I couldn't track down. It might have been like off air that somebody was just like, you know, I'm kind of getting young people like, you know, if you're only making like 80 grand a year, you might want help with health care. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's like, where are these amazing jobs? You know, so. So these people really are, and I think self-interest and ideology and closed social circles are overdetermined. But I think they're starting, so embarrassing themselves, starting to grapple with the policy and all they've got left and the only effective fear they have left is he can't win. And so that's really, to me, I just tune out all the other stuff. Like I have answers for it and we can take care of it, whatever, and they can make fools of themselves. That's great. But electability is the only relevant argument left. And once that bridge is crossed, done. And the thing about electability is I get why the Bernie campaign has to lead with Bernie beats Trump. And I believe strongly that Bernie is the best candidate to take on Trump. But Trump is also true that Trump will be a formidable candidate. Uh, usually, But by the way, can anybody honestly say, and I think in 2016 this would be different uh, in a uh, Biden being a bit more on the ball. Uh, that's a euphemism. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I could could anybody with just honestly and without breaking out laughing see any of these other people even being able to credibly compete against Donald Trump? I don't see it. I saw the Bloomberg thing where he was ducking under the podium. Trump is yeah. not only would Trump beat Bloomberg, he would have genuine joy doing it. <laughs> Trump is really funny. 
He's incredibly funny. And it, and and it's a big problem that so many people who have led the like it's basic strategy. You need to have some understanding of your enemy's appeal and their strengths. And you have a subculture sorry. Bloomberg. <laughs> you have a subculture of people who who project their cultural preferences, values and humor and particular neuroses on the rest of the electorate and for better and for worse. And I do mean for better and for worse. It's not there. Can I say one thing that I'm so happy that I think Bernie can take back from Trump, which is incredibly important. And for the past couple of years, I think that anyone left of center has come to just revile the idea of a rally because we're so used to the idea of Trump rallies, which are these really horrifying spectacles uh, that I, I can't these, like, stand. Nure- Nure- Nuremberg like. <laughs> yeah, but uh, like, like a rally in and of itself <laughs> as a political tool is amazing. And if you've ever been to one of Bernie's, if any of you guys were at the Boston Common one yesterday, yeah, it was incredible. And They're that's what a lovely. rally should be. Like, drum up that kind of enthusiasm. And that kind of enthusiasm matters. Like, I remember in 2016, I forget who did this study, but I think, like, one of the university teams that predicted Trump's win uh, basically looked at this thing that I think they termed the enthusiasm gap. Mm-hmm. That if you looked at the level of enthusiasm uh, around Trump versus the level of enthusiasm around Clinton, that this was a difficult thing to measure, but it was decisive. Uh, and I think that like rallies bring that out and rallies and drumming up that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of support, that kind of collective energy is the kind of thing that, you know, makes a super delegate awfully hesitant to throw their weight towards someone besides Bernie at a contested convention. Um, you know, I mean, I I think that there's there's usefulness in being the supporters of the candidate that people really don't want to cross or really don't want to be annoyed by. And this is one of those times that it's really great. So like that kind of energy around Bernie relative to other candidates is an amazing thing. And I'm glad that he's destigmatized <laughs> the concept in general after a couple of years of Trump. Right. And don't let them take that away from you. No. I mean, that that is actually the only relevance of this whole mm. Bernie bro nonsense is it is it's it, it's a whole game to try to take that energy away. So don't listen. And do you remember that New York Times at a, uh, editorial board interview question? They were like, so you say you'll do rallies and Trump does rallies. What's the difference? Like they. <laughs> like, yeah, I like that. That's sort of like, yeah, it's a good. Uh, the rally good. is just a form. The content of the rally does not matter if. Nelson Mandela, Pinochet, both gave speeches. Um, All of you good workers, good news to you all tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? 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 They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You're either with the Union or a thug for J.H. Blair. Tell me, which side are you on? 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 My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son, and I'll stick with the union till every battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? 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 Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? You know, my biggest problem with Bernie is that every time he talks about black people, it's always poverty. 
It's always criminal justice. Now, this is 2016. I'm, we're going to you know, do all of these wonderful things. And I'm like, 74% of us are not impoverished. There has to be a black agenda that doesn't start with, I'm going to fix unemployment and poverty when most of us are not unemployed or impoverished. And it's insulting, I said, especially for this audience, you know, uh, because that's not really our state. The, the criminal justice, most of us are not in jail or have been, you know, and so there has to be a broader. So when I look at a Frederick Douglass plan or even, you know, Bloomberg's initiative with Greenwood, while, you know, I don't know if they're going to actually ex- execute them. I'm happy that you see beyond and you understand what happened with redlining and, and things. And you're going to do things to help with home ownership and black owned businesses because that's the basis of who we are as a people and always have been. We always build community. We just need you to get out of our way. Bernie would never change. And she's, you know, we had a conversation. It was like, it's hard to get him off of that. So in my mind, I see someone that's stuck. So I appreciate the point about, of course, black people should not be over identified with poverty. But Bernie Sanders, I don't think talks about black people in poverty in that context more. I think he talks about poverty, period, more than any other candidate in the race, because here's the statistics. Obviously, I'm an, you know, a relatively affluent black person who's lived a life with a lot of privilege one generation removed that's not the case and when I go home to my family I'm very I, I resonates with me when he talks about the fact that 40% of Americans can't respond to a $400 emergency can't come up your life depends on it gonna get kicked out of your house have a medical problem can't come up with $400 and you know that yes black and brown people are overrepresented among that 40% something like 80% can't respond to an $800 emergency it, it goes up if I, if I just may you know our uh, something like um, thirty to 40,000 people die every year from a lack of medical treatment. 500,000 people die, uh, sorry, uh, go bankrupt every year because of medical bankruptcies. So when we talk about the country as a whole, I think too often politicians have pitched themselves to the middle and upper middle classes because they perceive that those are the people who vote. Those are the people who are on TV and who they interact with more generally speaking. And we forget enormous swaths of the country who are extremely economically insecure. No, and it's I, not, I, I, might I not be me or you. No, I disagree with that. I think that's always, and this was the thing, I expect something different from Bernie. It's always when they talk about black people. It's always about poverty and unemployment and, and all of the things that are related to criminal justice. And it's insulting. And I think, you know, we should be more aspirational, but also so, you know, I feel like demonizing billionaires, you know, is also not because you can do all of that without then demonizing, you know, people who bring 25 million jobs into the marketplace. You talked about Walmart and Starbucks. Most people do work for them and they have great benefits. And, and while they can do better, yes, they can do better and they can be held accountable. These billionaires have created Home Depot and other places where people are actually working. Right. So it's it's easy in philanthropy. And I'm not shilling for billionaires. Let me just be clear. But why can't you deliver that message without at the same time smacking these people over here? I think that as long as half a million people in the wealthiest country in the world exist, it's my personal, and I, I understand that if you if you disagree, it's my personal ethical belief that it is it's unethical to have $60 billion. I don't think that's enormously controversial. We're not talking about preventing people from being affluent. We're not talking about preventing people from having you know millions of dollars. You don't get to have $60 billion because you work 60 billion times harder no, than the workers no at your company. No one's arguing that. That's because and of it, the laws that are in place right. that we need to fix. And what about the Senate, and, and, right? So that's but if I, if change I the laws. Me, this is a really really important point. 
There is a lot of misunderstanding in this country about how wealth gets made. And we tell this Horatio Alger story that says, if you just have a really good idea and you just work harder than everybody else, that's how you get billions of dollars. And there are enough black people I know listening to this right now that know that they work harder than their boss. Absolutely. They work two or three jobs. A lot of people's mothers who have been out here hitting the pavement their entire lives. And there's not a correlation between how hard you're working and what's paying off. No one could dispute that. And billionaires have, when you get an enormous amount of money like that, that profit is coming from stealing the wages, from taking more than what you, not paying people what they are owed. Ford That's wasn't point doing that. Period. Mark Cuban's not doing it. I'm just, so, I just think again, the blanketed, the, the, well, the cutting us. Let's talk specifically. Let's, yeah. let's talk about these Walmart workers. Walmart workers support Bernie Sanders in part because he took the fight to Walmart and he went to their board meeting. And he pointed out the fact that Walmart underpays its employees so much that some enormous percentage of them, I don't want to misrepresent, but some enormous percentage of them let's, are have government subsidies. I have let, to, let's talk about Walmart. Welfare. Let's talk about their management, the majority of which are black, who are making six figures. Because that's also Walmart, which we never talk about yeah. that part of Walmart, right? Yeah. The the black folks that are making six figures in management at Walmart, which are a lot, right? So yeah. I feel like we're just sussing out some things right now, sure. just getting to know each other. But I want to be convinced when you leave here, because no matter what, I'm voting for Bernie Sanders if he's a nominee. Same. Unfortunately, I don't think the same, right, for a lot of Bernie supporters. And I also, because we, we heard at the uh, last debate, if he doesn't have 1991, he believes that he should just get it, even though he didn't believe Hillary no, he should have gotten. Dem- the majority, the democratic process should take its turn and that we shouldn't use super delegates to override what the predominantly black and brown voters that brought him to that majority want. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at HearTheBurn at BernieSanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag HearTheBurn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week.